This past week, the world was uh, significantly made aware that apart from oxygen, you can't live. Monday morning, we were all kind of brought into this dramatic rescue, hopefully, of these folks that were on uh, the submarine. Sadly, we didn't know at the time it was too late. But you could just hear people in conversations going, there's, you know, so many hours left, so many hours left. And I, I heard people talking and having conversations. Is, what is it like to, to die when the air runs out? And we were all just absolutely aware that if you don't have air, you don't live. M.L. Bruner makes this statement. He says, oxygen is to the lungs such as hope to the meaning of life. If you don't have oxygen, you don't live. And if you don't have hope, you don't want to live. Without hope, the future seems bleak. And to be quite honest with you, a score of people in a variety of ages, in particular those who are older, are finding creative ways to end their life. Why? Simply because they don't have hope. They don't have anything to look forward to. Hope can be elusive. It's, it's easier, I think, when you're younger. Um, and I'm not saying that, that it's, it's always easy but because there are challenges. But the fact is, when you're a younger, you have a lot of things to look forward to. When you're 16, I get to drive. You know, when you're 17, I get to pay for my own insurance. Hallelujah. And, and uh, you, you, you look forward to it. I'm going to be married probably, and I'm going to have children, and they're going to be smart like their mother. And, and you, you have all these things that you look forward to, uh, understandably. That's why it's, it's easier when you're younger to have hope. You have benchmarks by, you know, I talked with somebody the other day and said, I want to own 40 homes by the age of 40. Wow, that's vision. They have a lot of things that they look forward to, acquisitions and deals and passive income. And they want to, this fire, they want to be financially independent and retire early in their life. They have all this stuff they're going to look forward to. When they're 50, you still have all these things, but you hit an age. I don't know where that age is. You get to determine that for your own life. Where hope becomes more difficult. You have more life behind you than in front of you. Your body begins to hurt. Just aches. You wake up every morning and never ask you permission. It just hurts. And all of a sudden you, you realize that your, mar- your life is marked somewhat by your doctor's appointments. And maybe for some of you, what was going to be this beautiful retirement has turned out to be a significantly disappointing event. The writer of this psalm is in that place. He's not young. He's not what you would call older, uh, and we don't know what age he is, but he's probably above midlife. He's in that place where he can see retirement. He can see his old age. And in fact, he speaks of it twice in verse nine and in 18. And he is aware that one of these days soon, God, I'm gonna be whatever that age is for you, old. But he's also noticed something that is true and we see it today. It is a rare elderly person who lives with a lot of hope. 
It's not all that hard to have hope when you're 20. In fact, if you don't have hope when you're 20, come see me. You got a long life. But when you're 80, when you're 75, hope is hard. And that's why his commitment in verse 14, I think, is is really supernatural. He says, but as for me, I will always have hope. He is aware that he's getting older. He says, God, verse 9, do not cast me away when I'm old. I I can see it. I'm going to get there. He's old enough that he has plenty of enemies. He's old enough that he has gone through some bitter times, he says. But probably he hasn't hit that 75, 80. Maybe he's 60. Maybe he's 58. And he realizes that pretty soon I'm going to get to the same place that a lot of my friends have gotten. And I want to be different. I don't want to coast into a place where I'm unhappy. I live with a moderate to high level of disappointment. I want to be a person all the way to the end to be filled with hope. And he identifies in this text four things that will help get you there. They all are in relation to gratitude. He's telling us that the secret of life, if you will, if you want to be hopeful, is to be a person who has developed the habit of being thankful. But by the very writing of this, he says, as for me, contra to a lot of other people, Contra to a score of other households, as for me, almost like Joshua-esque, as for me in my house, we will serve the Lord. This guy says, as for me, I am going to age with a grateful heart. Why? Because it is the secret of hopefulness. Sir John Templeton, very, very wealthy person, entrepreneur, A 40-year board member at Princeton Theological Seminary makes this statement. If you're not grateful, you're not rich. No matter how much money you have, and this is a wealthy man making this statement. And I can imagine that he had a lot of wealthy friends. Wealthy people do. They kind of tend to hang out together. And my guess is that he noticed that a lot of his wealthy friends weren't happy. And so he makes this statement. If you're not grateful, you're not rich. No matter how much money you have. And part of the reason I think is seen in this quote by Elizabeth Elliot, her story is shared in the movie, The End of the Spear. She makes this statement and she has had heartache in her life, the loss of her husband, friends, difficult challenge. It is always possible to be thankful for what is given rather than to complain about what is not given. One or the other becomes a habit for life. That's a really critical statement. There are some of you, as you get older, you've made the choice. You've already set the die. You have determined. Can you change it? Yes, you can. Maybe today's the day. But you've developed this habit. And there's one of two habits predominantly that we take as individuals. It is a habit of thankfulness or it is a habit of complaint. That is actually early set in our lives. 
We are those individuals who find what's wrong with the world. We focus on what people haven't done for us. We're aware of every time we're disappointed. We mark our life by the wounds, by the tragedies and the trauma. In fact, we have become almost trauma addicted. We've kind of established that authenticity and genuineness is the highest value marked by our willingness to tell everyone in the world that we have an opportunity to share with about the trauma of our life. On the other side is this individual. They're not blind to trauma. This man is not. He talks about the bitterness. He talks about the wounds. He talks about his enemies. But his, mark would, his life would never be marked by and defined by the trauma of his life. Actually, he is convinced and committed to recognize what? The good things God has done. I think in our culture, in some ways, a person who is thankful is looked at with suspicion. Maybe even we consider them shallow. Oh, I wish my life was as, you know, glorious as yours. I wish my life had a white picket fence around. Those things I've heard from people. And the individuals without hesitation that make that statement have committed themselves to a life of what complaint. See, the problem with that is it doesn't lead to hopefulness. It leads to despair. This man has made this commitment. God, as for me, I will continually live in hope. How do you do that? He says, number one, you have to start by being grateful for who and where you are. You don't wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to start being grateful tomorrow. It's today. It's not when this happens, God, then I'll be grateful. It's when you do this in my life, when you give me a spouse, when you give me a job I've been praying for. It's no, it's today. And and he starts off in this psalm and he is quite aware that God, you are my rescuer. You are my righteousness. Lord, deliver me, God, from the hand of the wicked. Why do I believe that? Because you have been my hope, my sovereign Lord, since my youth. In fact, and you can almost hear him, him go back and said no God from birth I've relied upon you from the very first day of my life I discovered that I'm a gift created by you and I have you to be my sovereign protector I have you to be my God and I am pleased God the reality is there are some people who just don't like themselves and it's sad it really is sad they, they, they are always against themselves. They're either too tall, too short, too fat, too skinny. Their nose is too big. And they haven't become comfortable with the reality is, like me, I can live in one zip code and my nose can be in another. It's okay. I, I could have it shaved down. That would just be a lot of stupid money thrown away. But the fact is, is... At some point, you have to come to the place where you're comfortable in your own skin. And you wake up in the morning, you look yourself in the mirror, and you don't hate yourself. And some of you do. This writer says, no, you got to start with yourself, and you have to be grateful for who and where you're at. Is everything in your life perfect? No. Is everything in this guy's life perfect? Not at all. Lord, you've, you've made me face troubles 
many that were bitter. God, I got plenty of enemies. I got people who would celebrate my death. I got people who would show up to my funeral so that they could applaud. But that doesn't define his life. Lord, from, the, from day one, I have been mindful that you have been my God. From day one, I have been mindful that you have created me. From day one, I am aware that you had a purpose for my life. You were orchestrating my life. You were governing my life. You chose me. You were there when I was born. You were there when I was in high school. You were there when I was in college. You were there when I first got married. Every step of the way. And it becomes this place where you say, God, thank you. Thanks for allowing me to live. Thanks for letting me have life. Thanks for letting me impact people. Thanks for allowing me to make a difference. You have to become aware that life is a gift. And you start by being thankful for who and where you're at. But then understandably, you have to remember what God has done for you in the past. He says this all over this text. It's in verse 15 where he says, my mouth will tell of your righteousness, of your salvation all day long, though I know not its measure. I'm going to tell people about all the things that you've done. Verse 19, the same thing. Your righteousness teaches, uh, reaches to the sky, oh God. And you have done in the past great things. God, who is like you? I could tell stories over and over and over of your goodness. Verse 20, though I have seen all kinds of troubles. God, you're going to restore my life again, just like you've done in the past. From the depths of the earth, you will again bring me up. Notice that over and over. God, I remember the time you rescued me. I remember the time when I thought, man, life was coming to an end. I remember the time when I thought my enemies were going to win, but they didn't. Your past is filled with answered prayers. Your past is filled with prayers that didn't go answered. And later you discover, God, I'm so glad you didn't listen to me. And the reality is your past is also filled with times where God acted when you didn't even have the wisdom to know what to ask for. James says that every perfect gift comes from God. And when you look past in your life, you'll see that. Barbara Ann Kuyper she started a list. She felt like I need to develop the habit of being thankful. It's a habit that you have to create. We're not by nature thankful people. We are by nature people who see what's wrong, how people have failed us, and what God hasn't done. That's what we're drawn to. We're not drawn to those moments. If a person tells their life story, it's infinitely clear today that they are far more drawn to the trauma and to the wounds than they are to the victories, to the times God intervened. And so Barbara made this commitment and she started a list and that list started to grow and that list went to a second page and it went to a third page and she started just every day kind of becoming aware of the good things that God did, uh, kind of did in her life and those pages turned into a volume and that volume became a book and this was the title of her book, 14,000 Reasons to Give Thanks to God. Can you imagine Let's be honest, and and if I wasn't documenting them, I I wouldn't reach a thousand. 
I would struggle. My memory is not that good. I could go back and, oh, I could say, oh, God, you gave me a great wife. And, Lord, you gave me wonderful kids. And, Lord, you, you have always led us. And I could dream up those things and just by memory. But to get to 14,000, the only way you get to that is if you develop the habit of remembering and notating and documenting the goodness of God. Frances Ridley Havergal made the same commitment. She wrote the book, Take My Life and Let It Be Consecrated, Lord, to Thee. And part of that consecration, she said, is that I must document the goodness of God. And so she began every day to write the good things that God did. And she says, it will be my gift on these calendars that I wrote. It will be my gift to my kids that when I die, they will be able to go back over my life and see the fingerprints of God in my life every day. Years ago, I've shared part of this story before is that um, I read a a biography uh, of an individual who had documented 50,000 answered prayers. When I saw that number, I was like, you've got to be kidding me. I I don't think I could come up with 100. Uh, Of course, again, those, those high peak moments, yep, God, you led us, and God, you did this, and God, you spared me this, and maybe I could get to 250, and if I had, if I committed myself I could maybe reach 500 but 50,000 I didn't have a shot at it and and I was humbled because I discovered that I requested things of God a whole lot more than I thanked him I was much more attuned to what I wanted God to do than my praise for what he has done so 20 some years about 25 years ago I started a little practice I'd go to staff meeting and I had a little black box and I would just listen to the staff pray and I would start writing them down. And then I would go to, we had elders in this church and I would go to the elder meetings and I would go to other pastoral meetings and I just took this little dumb black box and people would ask say, what's that little black box? And it's like, it's my memory. And, and when I would listen to people pray and, and I would write down what they prayed. When I left there, I, I gave my box to my friends that, and they are still keeping it. When I came here, I started another box. Because if left to myself, I will always be way more attuned to what I'm asking God to do in the moment than thanking him for what he has done. And I will in time forget probably 90 some percent, maybe 95% of the glorious things that God has done. They will just be dust in the wind. They're going to be gone. Why? Because I can't keep them all in my head and so they were gone and so I started this practice and so what I would do is is I would go to a staff meeting or I'd go to a prayer meeting and I would just take a three by five card you'll see me do it every week and I'll bring that three by five card and whether it be Tuesday morning Thursday morning or my our prayer times Monday night um, and I will just write out somewhere between three and ten things on every card And when God has answered everything on that card, it goes into the God answered file. This is 15 years of our church's life. I can take you back. January 2009, we're $350,000 in the red. 
And the leadership of the church came to me and said, hey, we're, we're hugely in the red. You're going to have to fire two or three of your staff and uh, probably should do it this month. Wow, that's a great way to start a ministry in a church. So glad to be your pastor. You're fired. And I prayed and God gave me no peace at all. And I came to you and I said, I don't want to fire these folks, but you're going to have to learn to give in a way that you haven't. And did you know that by June that year, we were in the black. That prayer is answered here. I remember the time where we had paid off that facility over there and, and then all of a sudden another opportunity came. It was this property over here and we needed $1.2 million to put down on this property and we had eight weeks to do it. Now, I know some of you are loaded, but I don't really know who you are. But the fact is $1.2 I don't care. That's a lot of money. And we put this out. And I will never forget, it is, it is so deeply embedded in my mind. There's a, there's a piece of carpet over there that's holy. When I quit, I'm going to cut that piece of carpet out. And uh, it's actually not the carpet. I think we still had that glorious red carpet back in the day. And this little eight-year-old kid came up to me. And he handed me a note, Pastor, I will give all of my allowance And if I go back through this, all these cards are simply a testimony to the goodness and the power and the glory of God. We're going to face challenges in the future. You know we are. We're, we're, you made us see troubles and many of them were bitter and, and God how do I know he will restore? How do I know he will get us through? How do I know as a church we're going to make it? It's because I have documentation of the faithfulness of God. And that spirit of gratitude stirs hope in you. That's what he said. When I remember God, what you have done, it fuels in me this hope for the future. And it enables me to see you in the present. And that is number three, to choose to live gratefully in the moment. Some of you, you are absolutely in prison to your past. There's been some things that have occurred and it's defining, it's gripped you, it's shamed you, it owns you. And you need to say to Christ, I need to cut that off. I need to live in this moment. I need to see your grace in this day. But others of you are maybe where I'm at. I tend to live a lot in the future. I'm thinking about where we headed with North Block and what are we going to do and what's the next project at Seacrest and God, how are we going to continue to expand? How do we, Lord, how do we solve this issue that our second service, thank you very much, it's packed and people can't find a seat. God, how do we expand this footprint? And one of the dangers of that, and I live with it every day, is that I can crank through meetings and realize that I'm not as present in a moment with a person as I need to be because I'm thinking of the future. This writer says, God, verse 14, Lord, as for me, I want to always constantly 
live in hope. And I want to always and constantly be praising your name over and over again. That person has to be aware. They have to be mindful. God, look what you're doing. Look how you have worked in our life. And this this hope defined as this long and patient waiting is aware of the delays, but is mindful in the moment of reasons to praise God. God is working in your life. Is the prayer answered? Is the problem resolved? Is the issue done? No. But for a moment, can we just ratchet ourselves back and look in this moment, what good thing is God doing right now? And when we focus on that moment, it's amazing how our hearts begin to get fueled with hope for the future because we have committed to praise in the present. When I commit myself to that, and it's a habit, my heart begins to come alive and I commit myself to the fourth and final spirit and practice of gratitude. And for those of you who are, you'll call yourself a senior, this is for you. This is where this writer says, I wanna talk to you. Those of you who are past your prime, if you will, of age, where more life is behind you than in front of you. And you find yourself in your body hurting and you don't look forward to life the way you did. And maybe, to be honest with you, it's gotten painful. Your spouse has passed away. Or you discovered that you didn't save enough money for retirement. And you're going back to work and you're 75 and you think, God, I don't, this is not what I planned. And the last thing he finishes is if you want to live with a spirit of gratitude that leads to a life of hope, you have to commit yourself to tell others about the goodness of God. Verse 18 says it so clear. Even when I'm old and gray, God, do not forsake me until I declare your power to the next generation. Seniors, here's your assignment, if you so choose. It's not from me. It's from God. It's from this writer. You have a priority, and here's your highest priority. is to wake up every day and to find somebody in a generation behind you and to help them see the goodness of God. Why? Because some of them are in a battle as to whether or not they want to stay married. And if they don't hear about God's goodness and how he got you through a difficult season in your marriage, they might just quit. Some of them, they're not thinking of having children. They're going, you know what? This world is way too stupid and scary. It's dumb out there. Why would anyone have kids? And all of a sudden, you're going to come back to them and say, you know what? God has this rare ability like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to keep your kids safe even in a demonic world. And the only way they might consider taking that step of having children is when they hear your story of how you trusted God and how God put a hedge around your children, even though you raised them in a really, really difficult and less than Christian environment. But you have to own this. But if you do, I guarantee you, like this writer, God, give, do not forsake me. Don't take my mantle away from me until 
I have declared your goodness to every generation. Until I have helped my kids realize, I've helped other pastors realize, I've helped other leaders realize, you're going to face some challenges, but let me tell you about the time that God showed up in our life. Let me tell you about the time that we saw no hope and God answered. Let me tell you about when my enemies were cheering for my funeral and God showed up and rescued us. I guarantee you, if you commit to this, you'll wake up every morning. Your body probably will still hurt. And for some of you who your spouse has passed away, your heart will always remain slightly lonely. I don't know that that ever goes away. When you've been married 50, 60 years and all of a sudden your life partner who you adored with every fiber of your being is gone, I don't think you're going to wake up and say, wow, I just like being single. I don't think you'll ever get there. But if you wake up and you realize I have grandkids I need to inform of the goodness of God. I have neighbor kids who I need to help them see the power and the goodness of God. I have moms in the mom to mom group that I need to help see the goodness of God. When you wake up with that assignment and you accept it, you will have more fuel than you could ever imagine. Why? Because you will realize you have an assignment given to you by God and those people need you. And that's where hope comes from. Not because you have a ton of life in front of you, but because you have a God-ordained assignment given to you. And when you have that assignment and you know, God, you have given me this, it is my privilege to tell the pastors who will come behind me, when you lead in this church, there will be days that you're just going to want to pull your hair out, but God will show up. There will be days where you just, you're like, God, this is crazy taking care of your sheep. But God will show up. And there will be neighbors who think this world is really scary. And they're going to try and find a place to move so that it's safe. And then they're going to hear the story of how God showed up in your life. And they're going to begin to see, just like this writer, oh God, you're my rock. You're the one that I can always go to. You are my rock and my fortress. You have been my hope, God, my sovereign Lord. It's only through gratitude that life becomes rich and hopeful. It is. And gratitude is a habit that you have to create. It doesn't come naturally. Any more than thanksgiving comes to a two-year-old. It's taught. And you have to teach yourself that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the phenomenal Lutheran pastor and theologian who died in a Nazi war camp in 1945, made this, this statement. In ordinary life, we hardly realize that we receive a great deal more than we give. And that it is only through gratitude that life becomes rich. It's true in your life. You've received far more than you'll ever give. But you have to train yourself to let what it's been given to you register. And when you do, and you develop this thankful and grateful heart, God will inspire you with a hope for your future.
John Ortberg in his fun and very helpful little book, if you want to walk on water, you got to get out of the boat. He tells the story of these 122 men. There was a study done of 122 men and they had all had a heart attack. And they studied the most pessimistic and the most optimistic of these 122 men. Of the 122 pessimistic men, within eight years, 22 of those 25 had died. Everyone experienced a heart attack. And eight years later, they did an assessment. And of the most pessimistic, 22 of them had died. They studied the most optimistic. There were 25 of them. And of the 25, only six within eight years had experienced another heart attack and died. Orbrick's conclusion of this is it's better to eat a Twinkie with hope than it is to eat broccoli with despair. So as one dear friend in the first service said, I'm buying Twinkies on the way home. <laughs> it's true. It's better to eat a Twinkie with hope than it is to eat broccoli with despair. Why? Because it's only through gratitude that life becomes rich. And it's through that gratitude, life is filled with hope. My friends who are my age and above, we have an assignment and I hope you take it. You must tell the next generation about the goodness of God. That's your assignment. And when you take it, your life will have more fuel than you can imagine.